0: You have your Bibles then would we'll turn with me to Ephesians Exodus, that is, chapter three. Exodus chapter three. We're going to be looking over the next couple of weeks over God's call to Moses into ministry. And what I want us to each do is to consider each of our lives, because if you're a Christian, God has called you to ministry. He's called you out of darkness into the kingdom of light. Where we have the forgiveness of sins and where we have a special calling and gifting of God. That is true for every Christian. And so let's find our place within that context. And then as we go through the passage before us uh, and in subsequent weeks, let's, uh, let's think through uh, the experience that Moses had. And let's ask ourselves, have we come to terms with a holy God? And have we heard his call? And are we following him faithfully in it? In your bulletins, we have going through chapter 4, verse 17, but I'm going to stop at verse 6, and we're going to break this up into smaller chunks today. So if you'd read with me and hear with me the word of God, Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses... Moses and he said here I am then he said do not draw near this place take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground moreover he said I am the God of your father the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God Our gracious Father, who has given us this special revelation that shows us forth the holiness of God and the power of God and what state we are in as we come before your presence, we pray that you would send your Spirit upon the preaching of the word today and you would minister to our heart of hearts from which come all of the issues of life, and that you would wash us in the water of the word, and that you would show us a vision of your glory, that we might be changed from glory to glory in the likeness of our risen and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fill this place with your Holy Spirit, and may we hear the voice of God this day through his word, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We live in a very physical world where our senses are constantly taking in the sights and the smells and the taste and the tactile feelings and all of the things around us in this physical concrete world in which we live. And yet this physical world is also full of abstract and invisible realities and truths that are much more difficult to interact with. As Christians, we are called to put our faith in matters that we do not sense, to govern our lives by the things that we do not see. And to do so, we are asked to take a document that an invisible God wrote which tells us of realities that we cannot see and gives us promises for our future that we have no sensory experience and directs our lives to live in such a way that sometimes goes against our human reason. And all of that takes faith for us to believe and to live out and do. Yet that is not very far-fetched if we pause for a moment, because everyone, including atheists, have beliefs and abstract ideas that they cannot experience, but which govern the way that they think and live. In fact, so much of our lives are abstract realities. Math, for some of you, is very abstract, but it is for all of us if we do a simple problem in our head. A music score is a reality, but yet it's abstract until we hear it played. The laws of logic, which we all use in our cognitive reasoning, is something that is very abstract. Ideas in our mind, our thinking, our emotions, and love. All are abstract in some sense. The physics of light, whether wave or particle, we do not know. Quantum mechanics in areas so small that we cannot see. In fact, when you get right down to it, so much of our material world can be pretty abstract when you break it all down. But knowing this about ourselves and knowing too that our natural fallen bent is against the invisible God, there is a significant hurdle to overcome in order for us to understand truth and genuine reality about abstract and invisible things that we must believe in our life for life to even make sense. Our fallen faculties continue to marginalize the important things of life in favor of the more experiential things of life. But the most important realities in our lives are those things which are unseen. They are not physically sensed. And yet we drown them out with physical activity, constant noise, ceaseless movement. We go from experience to experience and if we do not have something active going on, something sensory, something physical, we often say that we are bored. And that's a big problem today in the world in which we live. In our highly sensory experiential culture, we have a problem with deep thinking, sustaining attention with ideas, meditation, prayer, and listening to sermons. And because of all this, God condescends to our fallen world with a childlike teaching. And he begins to show us the abstract and the invisible realities that must become of great importance to us. And he does so by using physical object lessons in our world to teach us of these invisible spiritual realities. Exodus is a book that is filled with the object lessons in our material, physical world that teaches us of deep and profound, invisible, abstract truths. And today I want to preach on one of those as we see God preparing Moses to go and to lead God's people out of Egypt. Before we're ready to serve God in ministry, we must experience His reality in our hearts. And this will be true of every one of us. And we have a picture of something that's going on in Moses' life here in the first six verses of chapter 3. That's significant for each one of us. Whether you are called into an official ministry of some sort or faithfully living out your Christian calling with the grace and the gifts that God has given us, we must come to terms with God. This morning I want to preach to you on Moses experiencing God at the burning bush. Most of you will have a little insert in your bulletin, and I'll try to hit all those points as we go through, but if you happen to miss one of those, then hopefully I'll cover it with some clarity. We are finding ourselves at the very end of Moses' wilderness training. In verse 1, it says, Now Moses, tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. As we might recall, Moses had spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, growing up in Pharaoh's house, something that was not an accident, something that was very deliberately purposed by God himself for part of his training. But he lived in the Egyptian palace, and he was able to uh, enjoy the the culture of Egypt and a very high standard of living compared to his uh, Hebrew brothers in Goshen. But the second 40 years of his ministry trading took side took place in the backside of the wilderness of Midian. And there's such a contrast between the first 40 years and the second 40 years. The life of a shepherd was Moses' preparation to liberate God's people down in Egypt. Egypt in the ancient world, in a sense, kind of had it all. They had the, the fine culture. They had the, the food. They had the meat and the leeks and the garlics. They had fine cuisine and, and they had complex architecture and they had sophisticated sages and they had entertainment and activity. Egypt is identified with the world and and a symbol of it as we see it pictured throughout Exodus. But the wilderness in which Moses is now at the last part of 40 years in the wilderness is such an opposite way of life. It is such a contrast with what he grew up with in Egypt. And shepherding was in such an antithesis to what the Egyptians would enjoy favor-like. In fact, for an Egyptian, shepherds were an abomination to the Egyptians. That was very clear in Genesis 46, verse 31, when, when Joseph was instructing Jacob and his family, who were a house of shepherds. And he said there that shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. And so it's not unlike God, to then train us in a way that is so unlike what the world is like. And the distinction between the shepherds and the way of the world is the point here from the wilderness to Egypt because God leads his servants to take the very place which is hateful to the world and despised by it. We are called out of that world system. We are called unto a holy God. And the very word holy means to be set apart from and set apart to. So shepherding sheep was good preparation for the leadership that God had prepared for Moses But it wasn't exclusively good preparation for Moses. We see the future king of Israel, King David himself, was found out with the sheep and called in from the shepherd to have the anointing oil put upon his head to be the archetypical king of which Messiah, the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus, would come to fulfill. We find now Moses shepherding these sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law, in the backside of the wilderness, and he's on Horeb, the mountain of God. Horeb and Sinai are considered the same place, the same mountain. There's a lot of ambiguity around these two particular words, and particularly the, the identity of their location. There's ambiguity regarding their location, but they are associated as the same mountain from the scripture itself. We know this even further on in the passage, which we will come to perhaps next Lord's Day. And what we do know about this mountain in which Jacob, I'm sorry, that in which Moses is found shepherding the sheep, we do know that this is a place that he will come back to. It's the same place where he would meet with God when he leads the children of Israel out. And it's the same mountain upon which he would ascend to receive the Ten Commandments. It is this mountain that would become a a sign to Moses himself, which we will see further down in the passage. But as we see in verse 2, Moses has a particular experience with God there at the burning bush. It says in verse 2, And the angel of the Lord, the word Lord there is the capitals meaning Yahweh. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. And so he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush... Itself was not consumed. So significant is this object lesson around the burning bush, and so significant has it been, even of churches and emblems of logos, that that even our denomination, the CPC, has chosen to use this burning bush as our logo. That I thought we would stop and just meditate on this particular figure here this morning before we move further. Let's unpack that a little bit further now as we see what Moses experienced in this backside of the desert right before he was called to go back to Egypt. We're introduced, first of all, to the angel of Yahweh. We are informed that the angel of Yahweh was, was present here. And this reference to the angel of Yahweh is what is referred to as a a theophany. A theophany is a manifestation of God to a person here on the earth in some form that he can sense or see. More specifically and narrowly, we can call this a Christophany. And a Christophany is a manifestation of the second person of the Godhead before his incarnation, before he became humanity. And that's an important point that I want us to consider theologically for just a moment. But when we consider this passage and the burning bush and the pre-incarnate Christ manifesting himself and speaking to Moses... One way or another, all of special revelation merges into the special revelation of Christ himself. The word of God merges into the word of God, which was made flesh and dwelt among us. A few comments on Christophany, such as we see here, is that it is Christophany, the Christ appearance it is the second person of the Godhead appearing in some physical form and sometimes that form as it is in other places is in the form of a man but understand that the pre-incarnate manifestation is not human it is only a form even if it presents itself as a man The person of Christ himself is eternal. The second person of the Godhead is co-equal and consubstantial and uh, and, and co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit. But his human nature had a beginning. It has no end, but it has a beginning. But the Christophany was an effective and unmistakable means of revelation where God would not only make himself known, but he introduced the unique person who would be the only one in whom the invisible God would be made visible. And that's why in Hebrews it says that Christ is the, the perfect image of God, even though he himself was also God. We have this divinity, we have this humanity that would then later be born and forever now exists eternally But it had a beginning. But a Christophany before the time in which he was born was this form of the second person of the Godhead making a special revelation to the saints of old. Now the most important form, or I should say the most common form, of of a Christophany was the angel of Yahweh. The word angel here literally means messenger in the Hebrew. And interestingly, in the Greek, the word angel also means messenger. So we need to understand that the word angel is not always used of those invisible spirits that we consider as good ministering spirits, the angels. But it can also mean the word messenger. And here we have, out of the burning bush, Moses now addressing the messenger of Yahweh. If you have your little sheet of paper, I want to, this might be helpful at this particular point. There's a little bit of a technicality that I think it might behoove us to consider, and that's the X of Y construction, which is a very very common grammatical construction in our Bibles, the X of Y. But that X of Y relationship can be ambiguous. There are times when the context seems to warrant the reading that this is the messenger from Yahweh. But it's very plausible and likely here that that X of Y relationship is one of apposition, where the Y is an apposition to the X where Yahweh is an apposition to the messenger. An apposition is a renaming of a noun, usually in a more specific manner. So what that really means is the angel of Yahweh really means the messenger who is Yahweh. So what Moses is now hearing out of the burning bush was a messenger who is Yahweh, and I think that's instructive for us. He's now represented in the flame, in the bush. Let's turn our attention to the bush. The Hebrew word for bush in this passage is used in only one other verse in the Bible other than in this particular context. And that particular cross-reference I put there for you is in Deuteronomy 33.16. It actually refers back to this, but there's a word there that we should pay attention to. I've bolded and highlighted that word. Deuteronomy 33.16 says, "...with the precious things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush." The word dwelt there is the word I want us to consider it is the word shachan. It is the word from which we get shekinah. Have you ever heard of the word shekinah or shekinah glory? The shekinah glory is the presence of God. It is the, the, the presence of His holy glory. And this glory presence of God here represented in the burning flame. So before Moses was sent out into the ministry, he must first come to behold the ineffable glory of Christ. And the view of Yahweh's Shekinah glory would be important throughout all of Moses' ministry, but here at the very beginning, God is revealing himself to him in a very significant manner, the likes of which will never leave him the same. This would be true for all of the other great leaders who would lead. It was true for Joshua who beheld the captain of the Lord of hosts before he led the people into the promised land. It would be true for Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the glory and the holiness Of the one true God beholding the Shekinah glory of God. Hearing the angelic praise where even the angels who are unfallen have to cover their face with two of their wings. And that was going to be important for a man who had a ministry, a prophecy to a people who would not listen. Peter had an epiphany moment when he realized, even in the boat, when Jesus said, just cast your net on the other side. I've been fishing all night, hadn't caught a thing, Lord, but okay, I'll do as you ask. And he pulls up two boatloads of fish. And he has this moment when he realizes, this is no ordinary man. This is no prophet. This is a holy God. And he responds, he says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Saul of Tarshish had that experience on the road to Damascus when he came face to face with the glory of Christ and was blinded for three days in preparation for him to embark on his earthly ministry. See, a vision of God's glory humbles a man and with a certain fear such that it becomes a prerequisite for our service. And to serve God acceptably, we must have a single eye to the glory of God. What Moses saw was a messenger. A messenger not just from Yahweh, but a messenger who was Yahweh. God himself, beholding the Shekinah glory of God, And the effect it had on Moses was the same as we see in other passages with other prophets or ministers. He hid himself from the face of God because he was afraid. And what's true for many of the servants of old is true for every Christian to some degree or another. In fact, every Christian will by necessity come and have at some point in his life an experiential fear of God that will humble him. In fact, you can't really become a Christian or be a Christian without having this sense of the fear of God. Romans 3.19 says, Now we know that... Whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be guilty before God. To become a Christian, we have to experience God in a way that our mouth will be stopped, our hearts will be humbled, and we have a grip of fear in our spirit. I know today we talk about the fear of God as the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of God is spoken about throughout all of the scriptures and sometimes today we make too much of a light thing of that and we say, well, that's just an awe of God and it is an awe of God. But it also has in that awe a sense of judgment that brings a fear to the very core of our being, that from that beginning, we then flee to the only place that we can go to have this tension released and that is Christ himself and find that our soul is then satisfied because the wrath of God has been satisfied for us on him. Without that fear of judgment, you do not know the fear of God. You have to have this experiential place where you hide your face, where you fall on your knees, where you're there, Isaiah, woe is me, or with Peter, depart from me. And this I'm afraid we take so lightly in today's world and we treat God so so tritely and we barge into His presence and we, we think of Him in terms of which are blasphemous. God is a God that is to be feared. But such is the greatness of God that He is a God that laughs. He's a God that is joyful. He is a God that is lavish in love. He is a God that gives grace beyond where our sin can measure. He is a God who is merciful and tender and kind. But He is also a God of wrath and of fierce judgment. He is all of that. And he is all good and all great, all powerful, all loving, and he is holy, holy, holy. From time to time, we will probably experience additional experiences of the glory of God in such a way that we have a a humility that overcomes us. A sense of the awareness of God and a heightened experience in our souls. Sometimes it's because of a severe awareness of our own sinfulness that we become somewhat fearful. And again, we have to remind ourselves Christ. Or there may be some occasion that brings us very close to death that we face our mortality with a little more sober-mindedness. Or perhaps there's some unexplained spiritual revival in your heart. A a wonderful mountaintop experience. And all of these are occasions and experiences that sometimes we go through from time to time that are significant growth in our spiritual lives. We don't live for those big experiences, we live faithfully in the mundane, but God sometimes brings us into an acute awareness of His presence, of His holiness with greater sense of gravity and fear to sober our minds, to humble our spirits, and to see His greatness with greater clarity. Because the way we grow from glory to glory is beholding the glory of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, But we all with an unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And if that sounds too abstract for you, perhaps let's look at the the bush a little more with clarity and through the faith that, that God wants us to see in the object lesson here so that we can take and digest this object lesson into our hearts, take the abstract truth, believe more of the invisible truth and reality that is before us of who this King of Kings is. So let's look at the symbolic, sim, symbolism of this burning bush. First of all, the, the burning bush speaks of the gospel of grace. That's why you see it on so many logos today in the Christian New Testament era. It's not without significance. The bush is burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. And fire in Scripture is an emblem of divine judgment. We see fire in God's holiness in opposition to evil. Hebrews 12, 29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. How is it then that God who is a consuming fire, burning up everything that is contrary to His holy nature, reveals Himself in this context and even to us without consuming us? To put it into other words of the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 13, it says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and can look on wickedness. So how can God look out at Moses? How can he look out at you? Or how can he look out at me? And the only way that the holy Yahweh God can look upon you or me or Moses or anyone else without completely consuming them, is the gospel. In Galatians 3.13 it says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Why a bush? This word bush is the Hebrew word for sine, which means a thorn bush. Think about that. Thorns are a constant reminder of the curse. After Adam and Eve left the garden, it would be thorns and thistles that would come up, and it would be part of their very curse. And so Christ entered the place of the curse for us. And while Christ endured the holy flames of God's fiery judgment for our sins, the flames could not consume Him while it burned all of our sins away who himself endured the holy wrath of God and the judgment that we deserve, but himself was not consumed. He was holy and without sin. This messenger who is Yahweh presenting himself in this fiery flame, the Shekinah glory of God from this burning bush is Christ himself. Speaking to his servant Moses is the same Christ who speaks to us. So, God's fiery judgment is that which consumes sinners apart from Christ. And it will consume them eternally in a, in, a, in a judgment where the fire will not be quenched. If you do not have Christ as your substitute, as, as that one who has then been the curse for you and has received the wrath of God in the fiery judgment of God, then you are not safe. But the promise is to you. And to all who are here today, that this holy fire of the consuming God is also the God who extends his grace and his provision in Jesus Christ to us, that in him we might be safe. And in him we might enjoy the very fires of his holiness and not fear them in the way that a sinner would. Because the same holy fire of God that judges the wicked is the same holy fire that purges us from our dross. Like a metal going through a smelting process and where the dross comes to the top and it's filtered off that hot heat of God's holiness is that which Isaiah was purged with and and then we come into a holy presence of God with anticipation with a desire to be there, not a fear of his judgment or punishment. But it's not one a place that we can just barge into. We always come through the mediation of Christ. Always in him do we pray. Always in him do we enter into the presence where the Shekinah glory dwells, above the mercy seat, above the throne of Almighty God. The second symbol here of the burning bush is actually identified with Israel himself, herself, the people of God. And the people of God who have been united into Christ also experience much of the same kind of affliction that he himself has endured. And through the ages and through the years the antithesis of the world will begin to persecute and continue to persecute the people of God, but the persecution cannot consume us. At the time that the Lord appeared to Moses here, the Hebrews were suffering the iron furnace of Egypt. And that's in a reference from Deuteronomy 4.20. The iron furnace of Egypt. But as fiercely as the flames would burn against them and the sufferings that they would endure, they cry out to Yahweh and He hears their cry and He redeems them and saves them. They are not consumed in the iron furnace of Egypt. And so Christ exhorts us even today in Matthew chapter 10, He says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, But cannot kill the soul. Fear him who is able to destroy the soul and the body in hell. He who finds his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake, he will find it. When the fires of persecution have come upon God's people, it has done so for decades and centuries and millennia, but it will not and it cannot consume them. We have this imagery once again with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah, when they were in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar, he looks, was there not three? Why do I see four? Because Christ, another theophany, Christophany, was with them. And when we're with Christ, the flames of the persecution cannot consume us. They might... Kill our bodies, but they cannot consume our soul. And so, as with Christ, we have life everlasting. That life is not when you die, the life is when you begin to live with Christ. That is when eternal life begins for you. And so, here it is with the imagery of the thorny bush, identifying with the curse. And it was burning, but it was not consumed. And it shows that God's glory can be manifest in His holy judgment fire. But it's a way that God can look upon us in and through Christ and see us as He sees His Son. All of those sins are gone. They have been burned. They have they've been buried with Him. In baptism, they have been nailed upon his cross, and we now are perfect in Christ. The law has been perfectly fulfilled in Christ. Yeah, we still fall short of God's glory and sin in this life, but God sees us as perfect in Christ, as already glorified. Romans 8. And so we can draw near unto God. In fact, we are even bidden to come boldly unto this very throne, the very presence of the Shekinah glory of God to receive mercy and grace for our time in need. Now I want us to draw one last attention to then as Moses was being instructed here, God says in verse 5, Do not draw near this place. Take off your sandals for the place on which you stand is holy ground. The holy ground is because it is sanctified by God's very presence. And that very presence is the Shekinah glory where he is manifesting himself here to Moses. And by virtue of where God is, it sanctifies the place. And that place must never be profaned. Uh, That's for our sake. Remember, Uzzah, with good intentions, was trying to steady the ark of God. The the very throne of the Shekinah glory of God when it was being brought back from the Philistine camp. And and here he goes, it, it was on a oxen cart which it should never have been on and it was about to fall off and he reaches up with good intentions didn't want the ark to fall and immediately God smites him with death see that brings fear into the camp once again for the holy and presence of God of which God's people can never forget it must govern the way that we live and think and breathe and move and yet still have a fullness of the joy knowing that we are clothed in Christ and accepted in him It keeps us close to Christ. But God says, Moses, don't draw near into this place. Because this is holy ground. You're forbidden to do so in your sinful state. Take your shoes off, Moses. What we're going to see in this word drawing near... Is that which was prohibited of God's people. When they come back to the same mountain and God says, Now go and prepare the people and sanctify them and tell them, Do not draw near unto this mountain. But Moses, you draw near. And we have this this sense where God has just redeemed his people. And then he says, But stay away from me. And now come near to me. And see, it's that we have to understand, that before we can draw near unto God, we have to understand that we have to be stopped in our tracks with the holiness and the power and the fear of God so that we then come to God on His terms. Oh, would the church understand this today? We worship God on His terms and not on ours. We can only come into the presence of God on His terms and not on ours. This sacred space is identified with the Shekinah glory of God. Which later we will find in the Holy of Holies. The most holy place. And it is the evidence of God's presence in the midst of His people. It was also the manifestation of His holiness. That was to deal with His people That distinguished them from the Egyptians of the world. And Moses was instructed now to take off his sandals. The ground was no place for sinful feet. The ground was no pathway of the world. And it would be the same holy fires that would then purge Israel of its sins through their substitute. That would be the judgment fires unleashed upon God's enemies. So we see the same holiness displayed in greater magnitude when Moses comes back to this mountain and all the people quake with fear and they stay away from the mountain for cause of fear and yet that's where they needed to be. And then after all that's set, then God makes a way of provision for his people then to come into his presence in a holy way through the priesthood. And that's who we have in Christ. We have a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is he who is behind the veil, as an anchor for our soul. It is he that makes intercession for us. And that's why we pray in his name. We worship in his name. And everything is mediated through Christ because it is in him. And only in him are we accepted before a holy God. But in him we are fully accepted. It's it's not a halfway. It's not a warm bait. It is all or nothing. And here we have it all in Christ. And so after he has shown us who we are and we cannot come in ourselves, and we cannot fix our problem, it is through Christ. And when you come through Christ, you are fully and completely accepted in him. He has made us fit to come putting off of our now old way of walking and walking in the newness of life, having our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. And today, as God's people, we are invited to draw near unto God and God will draw near unto us. The burning bush has so many lessons for us. It it shows us of God's holiness and his way that he cannot just accept sinners on our terms. It shows us that we are sinners and and as we come to understand the holiness of God, it brings a great fear of his judgment into our souls. That curse must be dealt with and we cannot do it. We see the judgment fire of God which is consuming of the sins but not of the bush where Christ is the curse bearing our sins, having undergone gone the fiery judgment of God upon the cross. And yet He Himself, without sin, is able to endure the eternal flame of, of His Father and of God Himself because He Himself is holy. And unconsumed and now resurrected as our great high priest. And now he loves to meet with us. He provides a way for us to draw near, yes, even on holy ground. And he says, come near. And come. Come boldly. Come not fearing his judgment. If you're in Christ, you come with boldness and certainty and faith, knowing that right at the very throne of God, he has the mercy and the grace Have everything you need for life and godliness available to you now. Because the greatest thing has been overcome. So by faith we behold his glory. And as we behold his glory, as he is revealed in the scripture on his terms, we are changed from glory to glory into his likeness, the burning bush, the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for teaching us obstinate, fallen sinners bent against our Creator with these object lessons of childlikeness to give us a childlike faith in our great, holy, mature God. And we are thankful, O Lord, for the grace that has illuminated these truths to our hearts. And we pray that You would increase our faith and give us a greater sober-mindedness, a greater sense of gravitas in our own hearts and spirit of who You are, that there would be a fear that would govern our spirit, that would turn to great joy as we look to Christ, and that we would never barge into Your holy presence with our worldly shoes or with our sinful self, but that we would look to Christ who is the perfect sacrifice, who is the one who is our great God, our Redeemer, our Savior, and our friend, our great high priest, our great King of kings, and our prophet to mediate for us so that we will be accepted in your sight through his ministry of mediation. How thankful we are that you bid us to come even today to the mercy seat, into the heavenly holy of holies through him. And we ask that you would bless us around this, his table, as we celebrate and feast on these things. In Jesus' name, amen.